0: Thanks, Rick. Well, I'm kind of nervous. I've, I've, uh, I've preached a lot of sermons through the years. I don't typically get nervous whenever we're in our meeting place, but I don't know some of you that well, and I don't know some of you at all. So uh, I'll try to be true to the Word. I will uh, try to uh, love well and try to honor the Lord Jesus as we come to his word. And it is a privilege to be here with you today. I want to thank my friend Rick. As Rick said, we've known each other a long time, and I'm thankful for his faithful and godly friendship. I know few men. I've known Christians my whole life. I grew up in a pastor's family. All my uncles are pastors, all my cousins are pastors, it's kind of in the family blood, but I've known uh, very few pastors like Rick through the years who consistently demonstrate love and humility and charity to those around them. You can fake that for a little while, right, but you can't fake that for 12 or 13 years, and so I want to thank Rick for his friendship. I want to thank the elders here at, uh, at Berlin for the way that you have welcomed us, for the many hours of dialogue we've had together, for the way that you've listened to us, for the way that you've encouraged us and helped us to see things. I want to thank the people here at this church, the people who make up this congregation, for the way that you've welcomed us. We have felt cared for, we have felt loved, and we're grateful for that. Thank you especially to all of you who put on the most recent BBS, the Vacation Bible School, and loved on our kids really well. We're really grateful for you. So I am uh, a little nervous to be here, but I'm excited and I come with a grateful heart. Rick, the other day when we were doing some planning for today's worship gathering, upon my request, he didn't make me do this, but upon my request, he gave me two copies of your church history. So those sit in that cabinet back in the lobby. How many of you from, from Berlin have, and I'm being careful not to say Berlin, all right? So my kids are going to go to the new Berlin High School, Berlin High School, so I'm trying to be very careful. So how many of you from Berlin have read through your church history at some point in the past? All right, put your hands down. How many of you uh, know that it exists, but you've never read it? A few of you? How many of you didn't even know it existed? Yeah, maybe a couple of you, all right. All right. So there is a version that was put out, I think, in the 1950s or something like that, and then at the 150th anniversary in 1979 there, which sounds crazy. Our church has been around like 12 years. We feel like we kind of know what we're doing until we come here, and uh, we feel sort of like toddlers. But, But at your 150th anniversary, which was like 39 years ago, that's crazy, um, a, another edition was put out. There's some really interesting stories in, uh, in your history. The first pastor, we could do a quiz here, and if you remember these things, you win. But the first pastor here at Berlin, uh, his name was Ahab Jenks. That's a great name for a pastor, isn't it? <laughs> the church historian said that Ahab was a wonderful pastor and that was made clear by the fact that a lot of babies were named after him. So, if you are great with child and have not yet chosen a name, I would commend to you Ahab Jenks, um, the longest-running pastor that I could detect from the uh, the history, served for 25 years from 1846 to 1871. There have been a lot of ministers here, but. He was and may still be the longest, I don't know, They're, the most recent history went up through about 1979, uh, and I know there have been a few pastors since then. Rick, you're probably up there like second or third now, so great job. But uh, John W. Thompson was the pastor here for 25 years, and he was very active in the Underground Railroad, which is incredibly interesting. If you know anything about the community around here with Africa and... Um, up through that portion of the world, a number of the people who actually made up this church back in the middle portion of the 19th century had places in their homes, hiding places in their homes, where they would hide runaway slaves on their way to Canada. What a history your church has. There are other stories of uh, a deacon's son who was caught laughing in church, and he was suspended from church for a while. So all of you who just laughed, you can find yourself out into the lobby. Uh, Another couple, a a married couple, was sanctioned in the church for dancing. So I won't tell you what our people do when they get together and have parties. For 17 years, from about the mid-1950s up until when the Army Corps of Engineers finalized the dam at Allen Creek and flooded the valley... There was a lot of uncertainty here. In fact, from what I've been able to tell from the history and talking to some of you, there was some indication that the presbytery would shut the church down entirely. But through the faithful service of some that are actually still here, according to my understanding, this piece of property was procured and a building was placed up in 1972. And later, a church bell, which was not original to the building over, off of, out of, Africa Road was erected, it's still out there today, and this is what was said about that bell, may it ring out over a useful, growing, loving, serving Berlin church for another 150 years. That's a beautiful thing to say. God has been faithful here to this people, and it is our prayer as the people of God that he will continue to do that. Ephesians chapter 2, and in particular our section today will be verses 11 through 22, although I am going to read the entire chapter. This chapter indicates to us what it looks like to be the people of God, understanding the wonder of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and purposing as a result of that to live in unity and in missional passion. That is the question that is before us, is it not? Your mission statement as a church is this. This has Rick's fingerprints all over it, but I think it reflects well your nearly 200 years of existence. Your mission statement is, our mission is to delight supremely in God through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God's name and for the good of neighbors and nations. Here's ours. Here's North Point's. We exist to worship our great and gracious God by making disciples in our community and around the world. They're they're very similar. The reason we are here today is not just because we like each other. The reason we are here today, let's cut to the chase, let's just lay our cards on the table, is we are asking ourselves a question, not just as elder teams, but as churches, as church families. We are Asking ourselves the question, could we glorify God better and fulfill his intention to restore worshipers to himself through Christ? Could we do that better together than apart? That's the question we're asking. And it does us no good to act like we're not asking that question. We are. I know of few other passages in the Bible which speak to that question and all the resounding implications of it than Ephesians chapter 2. In the church in Ephesus, Paul wrote to believers who were very different from one another. The minority of this church was Jewish. They tended to be more scrupulous. That means that they had more rules and they allowed less. The Gentiles were the majority. They would have been less scrupulous but would have had a measure of confusion because they would have been brought into this covenant people of God which was represented in the Old Testament by the Jewish people living under the Mosaic Law which had all kinds of rules, 613 of them. Some of them positive, some of them negative. Some things you should do and some things you shouldn't. And Paul writes to these two groups of people that are worshiping together under one proverbial and even literal roof and are learning to lay down their prejudices and their preferences, the things that they had valued for centuries so that they could live together in harmony and having done so, make much of Jesus in this pagan city where the vast majority of people had never heard the gospel and would reject it altogether when they heard it. And the task before us today as we look into this text is to say, can people who are different, different ethnically, different in age, different in longevity of church life, different in worship-style preferences, different in the things that we do culturally within our own church families, can, can such people live together in harmony? Because if we can't, if we can't get past some of those things and learn to live together in harmony, this whole thing that we are considering, this question that's on the table, is an impossibility. But if it is true that the God of eternity perfectly holy has loved us with an unbreakable love intended before the foundation of the world to restore lost rebels to himself and make them his own not keeping them at arm's distance but welcoming them in as sons and daughters. Think of that. We who were formal formerly rebels far away from God alienated from him by our sin he he welcomed us in to his banquet table as sons and daughters with full rights and privileges if God did that is it not therefore an implication that people like us could do the same for the span The distance between God and us is infinitely greater than any distance between you and me or between you and the person sitting next to you that you've never seen before. Let's read God's Word. We'll study it in detail and make some applications. This is the Word of the Lord. And you were dead... not a result of works so that no one may boast. For were his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, verse 11, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. May God bless to us the reading of his holy world. If you are taking notes today, and I think there are some blank pieces of paper in front of you in the pews, I know you North Pointers are used to having PowerPoint on the screen, so just get used to doing something a little different for today. From Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, Paul is teaching us by inspiration of the Spirit that the church is to be a holy temple in the Lord. The church is a holy temple in the Lord that's that's true for the church universal and it's true for for Berlin it's true for North Point but again because we're laying our cards on the table the question we are asking is could we be that together could we collectively be a temple for the Lord's dwelling? If you are going to take notes, verses 11 through 12 teach us this simple but profound truth. It does us well to consider our former lost condition. Verses 11 through 12 teach us that it does us well to consider our former lost condition. Why is that? Why is it good for us to Remember well our former lost condition. Because in Ephesus, like in many other cities where the gospel took root, there was the possibility of division. There was the possibility and the actuality, it actually came to pass, that people noticed the differences in other people, the differences from them, the things that they treasured and believed and valued, not really first order things, not about how they were saved or justified, but their preferences, their, their heritage, ethnically, religiously. And it created the possibility and the actuality of division. So what Paul does, knowing full well that this was a serious potential problem in Ephesus, because it was in other places like Galatia, Colossae, Paul knew full well that this could happen in in Ephesus. And so he tells them, remember who you were. He speaks to the Gentiles as the majority in the congregation and says, at one time you were not part of the people of God. That's the, the basic essence of verses 11 through 12. You didn't belong to the promises of the covenants at all. You were alienated from them. For even though not every Jewish person, ethnically speaking, was truly justified, truly a follower of God, they were benefits of covenant promises. God showed them favor as members of the covenant community. But the majority of the people in Ephesus who made up the majority of the church in Ephesus had not grown up that way. These things were alien to them. They were alien from God and alienated from their brothers and sisters who were ethnically Jewish. What Paul wants these Gentile majority to understand is that they at one time were completely cut off from God because of their sin. He's setting them up to remember who they were and what had been done for them. And then in verses 13 through 16, he turns the table. He doesn't just leave them there wallowing in their former lost condition. Paul proclaims, then in verses 13 through 16, that through his sacrificial atonement, Jesus has reconciled us to God and one another. So, if verses 11 through 12 teach us that it does us well to consider our former lost condition, verses 13 through 16 proclaim to us that Jesus has taken care of that because of his sacrificial atonement. He has reconciled us to God and to each other. This shouldn't have been a surprise to the Jewish minority. Because Paul isn't just speaking to the gentle majority, he's speaking also to the Jewish minority, the more scrupulous, the ones who allowed less, the ones who would have been looking out of the corners of their eyes at their pagan neighbors who were now proclaiming the same faith they had. But this shouldn't have surprised them because, though we won't turn here today, if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, when God gives Abraham the covenant, that through him he will have a nation be birthed, and then through that nation the whole world will be blessed. God is prophetically saying to him, 400 or so years before Israel would ever get the law at Mount Sinai, that God's intention was not just to bless Abraham's ethnic offspring, but through that ethnic offspring, generally and specifically, that the whole world will be blessed. God's intention from before the foundation of the world, which Paul mentions in Ephesians chapter 1, was to restore to himself worshipers of every tribe and tongue and language and skin color and background and preference and scrupulous perspective. Ephesus had a good beginning. Paul loved this church so much that he gave his best protege, Timothy, to be its overseer, its pastor for a while. He knew what could happen there if these people were left unchecked, forgetting who they were and what had been done for them in Christ. So though they had been alienated, verse 12, from the commonwealth of Israel though they had been strangers to the covenants of promise and had no hope and were without God in the world, which reminds us of the first several verses we read of this chapter. What were all of us like before we were rescued by Jesus Christ? We were dead, verse 1. We followed the prince of the power of the air, verse 2. We were sons and daughters of disobedience, our lives, verse 3, were characterized by consistent sinfulness. And as Paul says at the end of verse 3, we were children of wrath. That's who we were. And nothing inside of us and nothing that we have done and nothing that we can ever achieve can commend us to God. That is not why He loves us. One of the most profound and mysterious verses in all of the Scriptures is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. Paul says there that we have been raised up with him and have been seated with him, with Christ, in the heavenly places. Paul speaks in a verbal tense as though that's already done. As though right now, though we are physically present here in body, we are with Christ already. Enjoying all the privileges of being part of the royal household. Think of the juxtaposition of what Paul is saying here in this chapter. Think of the the great voyage that has happened for these believers and and for us. We were sons and daughters of disobedience. We were children of wrath. And now according to verse 6, God has made us acceptable to himself through his son and seated us with him in the royal courts with his own eternal son. That is one of the most profound things that we could ever read, and it should be mind-boggling to us, that we who deserve the wrath of God because of our willful sinfulness, He has seen fit to make us His own and given us all the rights of being sons and daughters. He talked about this in chapter 1. In verse 5, Paul says that we were predestined for adoption. What is it inside of us that would make us commendable to God? We don't complete him. He didn't need us. He adopted us and made us his own and promised us, verse 11 of chapter 1, an inheritance and guarantees, verse 14, that inheritance by his spirit. He did that because he is pure love. And in our section for today, verses 13 through 16, we who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus became a propitiation for us, as Paul says elsewhere. One who bore the wrath of God and covered our sins, making us acceptable to God. And when Jesus shed his blood, which we together partook of today symbolically when we partook of the cup and ate the bread, symbolizing the brokenness of Jesus' body who was punished not for his own sinfulness but for our wickedness. Jesus, verse 14, became our peace and has made us one, Paul says, Jews and Gentiles alike. And he broke down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing all the laws and commandments and ordinances, the things that kept the Jews and Gentiles separated, so that he could create one new man in place of the two making peace. And, and so I say to you, people of Berlin, and, and to our people, people of North Point, if God can do this with people who had been enemies for millennia, people who had real differences, their rules, even their their physical bodies representing those rules. Things that would have gotten them killed a few short decades before this. If God could bring under one roof such people who were so distinct, could He, if this merger is His will, Could he do that here? Could he take a church that's almost 200 years old? Now, I know none of you were around back in 1829 when Ahab was pastoring around here. But that's your heritage. Could he take such a church rich in heritage? and put it together with a relatively newer church. We embrace the same gospel. We have the same mission. We value the same things. Do we do things a little bit differently? North Pointers, do they do things a little bit differently here? They do. People of Berlin you already noticed that we're a little bit different? You know what happens when people who are not governed by the Spirit in light of the gospel, you know what happens when people like that notice differences? They get really irritated. And they highlight the differences and they they minimize the things that they agree on. And then those differences become irritants and they grow up into the kind of things that separate us. And it would do us well as we are considering the possibility of whether or not this would glorify Christ, this merger would glorify Christ, and we would be better put together in reaching this community and displaying the glory of Christ. It would be better off for us at the beginning to say, what are those differences and is the gospel true And is Jesus worth, and are my neighbors, my brothers and sisters, also reconciled by Jesus, worth me setting aside some of my legitimate preferences for the sake of something so great? Verse 16, Jesus did all of this to kill hostility. And so I say to you, if the idea of this merger were to go forward, if, if we were to really pull this off, if this is really God's will, and I should say parenthetically that if it is God's will, none of us should get in the way of it. And if it's not, we should stop it. But if it is, there will be moments of hostility. There will be moments whenever you people hear of Berlin who have all the rights in the world to have your preferences and to honor your heritage and the way that you've done things, that you'll be, you'll be irritated with us. Let's just be honest. There'll be times, North Point people, were the people of Berlin, who have every right to value the things that they value, that they'll do things that will irritate you. And what's really interesting about this irritation is that the people doing the irritation, doing the irritable things, they don't know they're doing it because they think they're right in everything that they do. That's why we do what we do. We love the things that we do. What Paul was calling the church in Ephesus to was to lay down their rights, to notice the things that could actually trip them up, and in so doing, in so laying down their rights to love one another and reflect the glorious gospel of Jesus. Because isn't that what the gospel is all about? God noticing, God knowing full well that people are so different from him, but pursuing them anyway? Why do you think when Jesus told the story of the prodigal son that it rolled off his lips like he'd been thinking about it for a long time? Because, my friends, that's the original story. When Adam and Eve fell from grace in the garden... God did not cold shoulder them. He didn't passive aggressive them. He had every right to do that. To put it very mildly, God was irritated with them. And the differences were palpable. But what did he do? He ran to them. Which is why the story of the prodigal son is so compelling. While the elder brother of the prodigal wants justice, a pound of flesh. The father in that culture almost shamed himself by running to the prodigal and throwing a feast for him. That's the gospel and story personified. And that's what Paul was calling the church in Ephesus to. And if we're going to do this, folks, that's how we'll have to be. We'll have to be aware of the irritations. We'll have to be aware of the things that would trip us up relationally and learn to lay down our lives just like Jesus did. Isn't that what Mark says? The Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many and not for people that were commendable, not for people that were lovely, not for people that were seeking after him, for his enemies. And if that's true, then we can love each other too. Verses 17 through 19, Paul teaches us that through Jesus, we are restored to the Father in the Spirit, making us sons and daughters. All the power and love of the Trinity is leveraged on our behalf in verses 17 through 19. Peace was preached to us, those far and near, Jews and Gentiles alike, people who are different from each other. And now through Jesus, we both have access through the eternal spirit of God back to the Father. And now we're no longer strangers and aliens like we used to be. But we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's who we were. This is who we are. That's our new identity. What's the implication of that? Well, Paul spells it out for us in verses 20 through 22. We've been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And Christ Jesus, as Rick taught our children a few moments ago, is himself the cornerstone. But Paul ups the ante. They're not just a household. Verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. When God wanted to display his particular presence among Israel, what did he do? Gave them the tabernacle and later the temple. God was always omnipresent. God has always been everywhere. But God gave them a physical building to show that he was among them, that they were recipients of his favor. But ever since A.D. 70, there is no temple, and we don't need it. For God is making, through His Son, the Lord Jesus, the church into a temple. And so the question arises, North Point being a temple of God, a dwelling place for God through the Spirit. Berlin being a temple, a dwelling place for God through the Spirit. If we were to put these two temples together into a larger edifice, so to speak, a a larger temple... Could we together in humility and unity dwell together in love, reflecting the love that God had for lost sinners by loving each other even when we're different? And in so doing, as Jesus says in John chapter 13, by the way that we love each other, we show what Christ is like to the world. As Jesus says, after the Last Supper, which we just partook of together in unity, by this will all men know that you are my disciples by the way that you love each other. I commend to your attention for further study 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-12. through 12, Where Peter picks up this theme. That we are not just the temple of God collectively. We are individually stones in the temple. Which means that it's not just the elders that make this decision for an entity. All of us have a role to play. And in so doing, we declare the glorious gospel of Christ to the world around us. One of my favorite pastors here in the United States said this last night to his congregation through Twitter. Jesus didn't die and rise again to get us going to church and adding some niceness to our already pretty good lives. He died and rose again to create a new kind of community that will astonish the world. If this works, it'll not only astonish us, people who are different from each other, but it'll astonish this community. And though God is sovereign over all things, my friends, there are people, thousands of them, surrounding this building today, surrounding this dwelling place for God, we the people, who have no conception at all of their need for Jesus Christ. And so the question arises for us, could we love each other in such a way and be on mission together that we could astonish this community by showing how different people can love each other and can value the gospel more highly than our preferences for the sake of the glory of Jesus and the good of the world? That's the question. Here are three ways to think about this text, three applications, if you will, and we'll close. First, we should respond with thankfulness and humility. We have been saved and secured by unmerited favor. There's nothing in you and nothing in me that commends us to God. So we should respond to this text with thankfulness and humility. There is no room for pride. There is no room for maneuvering whenever we recognize what God has done for us in Christ Secondly, we should respond with sacrificial love for one another, being willing to set aside our preferences and rights as Christ did for us. I say to you again, if this is going to work, if this is God's will for us, we will all have to do that over and over again. You've had to learn to do that in your marriages, most of you who are married, right? You don't bring all of your prerogatives and all of your, your things that you value highly into your marriage and demand your rights, because that doesn't go so well, does it? <laughs> it's always interesting when a new couple gets married, I've done a number of weddings through the years, done their premarital counseling, and uh, they move into their marriage and they, they think they know that it's going to be kind of hard, but they'll, they'll figure it out, Right? And then you see them after six months or 12 months, and they've got that look on their face like, I had no idea, right? That's what this will be like if it is God's will, and we will have to learn to delight, not just be okay with, but to delight in setting aside our rights for each other. And only the Spirit can do that in us because of the hope of the gospel. So we should respond with thankfulness and humility, we should respond with sacrificial love for each other, and lastly, we should respond with prayerful, engaged hearts, seeking the reconciliation of our neighbors. That's what this is about. Why did God bring together under one roof these believers who were different from each other? So that Ephesus would get the gospel, and the cities around them would get the gospel, The only real question before us today in in this merger discussion is could we better glorify Christ and reach this community together? We will display that by the way that we love each other and by the way that we leverage all of the blessings and resources that exist in these two independent congregations. If we were to bring them together and leverage them together, this community could be reached and, and that would show the astonishing love of God. I say, if you want to know my mind on this, I say it's worth it. May the Lord Jesus direct our hearts and our minds. May he show us what he wants. And no matter what, no matter where this leads in the coming weeks, may the Lord Jesus be glorified and may we learn to love each other in the way that he loved us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us now, we pray, by your Spirit to embrace these truths. Do it. We pray for your glory. You are worthy to receive the reward of your suffering. So do it for your glory, and do it for our joy, and do it for the joy of those all around us who have not heard and need to hear and need to see. Help us. We pray. Amen.
1: Together, the song "Be Thou My Vision." It is a prayer and. We invite you to make this your prayer as we're really seeking
0: God's vision for our individual lives, for our life together as followers of Jesus Christ. this blessing. God has the last word. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ.